Welcome to Meowcore, the podcast where I, Laura, show my cool friend Panya the music that I like, which is mostly hard rock and heavy metal. Meow. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Um, it's been a little rough. World politics is not easy for me. Mm. But yeah, I'm managing. Mm-hmm. And this I'll makes an excellent distraction. Yeah, let's go. Let's go back to 50 years ago. And I keep thinking that this music that I'm showing you is uh, not that old. Surely yet. 1990 was only 20 years ago, right? Or 10. Mm. Surely. Mm. Surely. It's whatever we design um, today. We're going, we're going to stay in the 70s. And we're going to talk about one of the pioneers of electronic music, because at the same time as uh, hard rock, the hard rock dinosaurs were touring the world and filling the arenas, dinosaurs. a young gentleman in, yeah, we call them dinosaurs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because they are ancient. They're large and old, apparently. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The so large he, idols in our eyes. That's all right. Why. A young gentleman mm -hmm, in France named Jean-Michel Jarre was uh, recording experimental music on uh, keyboards and uh, just taking advantage of the fact that you can make this music on your own at home with very little equipment. And uh, we're going to go to his third album, which was called uh, Oxygen. Oxygen. Before that, he was making these, um, again, very experimental, kind of sharp tunes. And one of them, I listened to something from his second album, it was called Free Floating Anxiety. And within seconds, it sounded like anxiety, so I'm skipping that. Oh, okay. We don't want to make our listeners any more anxious than they already are, and we don't need any help with that. No, but uh, yeah, we will go to things more uh, connected to uh, melodic pop music, um, something that is more like what he was doing the, for the rest of his life. But if you guys want to go listen to Free Floating Anxiety by Jean-Michel Jarre, go and do it. But that's not what we're listening to now. No, now we're going to 1976, and we're going to listen to the fourth track from the Oxygen album. It's just called Oxygen Part 4. Tell me what you think. So he wasn't experimental with his names. All right. Let's listen to Oxygen. I can't even... How do you do those French sounds? I can't do it. Oh. Do it with me now. Oxygen. Oxygen. Part voilà. four. Gen. Gen. Yeah, okay. By Jean-Michael Jarre. All right. That was odd. It just stopped. Yeah, did it? I think Wait, it might see. be the recording we were listening to. It might fade off properly mm. if it was in Spotify mm, or something. On an album. Yeah. Yeah. But I wanted you to see this uh, very futuristic video with the severed head and the, the double Jean-Michel. Mm. 
I suppose you would think of it as futuristic from the time, and yet now I'm yeah. just going, oh, that's so 70s. <laughs> <laughs> Which is sad, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was a trend in the at the end of the 90s when Hype Williams was directing all the videos for black artists where they would double and triple themselves. And I thought I thought that was so cool. But it started in the 70s, and this gentleman was doing it. It reminds me a little bit of the scene from Good Omens, the first season, where they're discussing angels dancing on the head of a pen, and, and Crowley is doing that really psychedelic <laughs> dancing scene. And it's the 70s, so it's probably supposed to evoke that just as well. Yeah. Yeah, and his clothes, and the, he did, didn't he have a mustache also in that uh, scene? Yes, he had a porn stash. Yeah, bigger hair and mustache. And it was terrible. Yeah. It was terrible. They took him to the disco. What did you think about the music? Uh, I didn't like it when it ended. I wanted to just sit in that space and listen to that. But it was and interesting peaceful. that in comparison to everything we've been listening to, there were, there was no, how do I put this? There was no bottom. There was no low notes. There was no drum, no bass. And there may have been, but mm -hmm. I didn't hear it that way. It all sounded like the higher registers. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're probably right. He was working with, I think he will tell us in the next video, I think two synthesizers, a noise machine, and I'm not, not even sure if he had a drum machine, but... Yeah, the drums, or the drum machine were not very prominent in this one. Yeah, well, and it's not as though it's hard to make or record drumming sounds. It's just a question of are you making them on an actual drum with a skin or are you just tapping on whatever's handy? Which isn't, mm -hmm. those aren't bad sounds, but they're not drums in the classic uh, linguist definition. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, this album less, but these previous albums sounded to me like what we call 8 bit today, or what my Nokia 3310 sounded like, the ringtones. MIDI sounds. And there's no bass. Yeah, there's no bass there. It's, it's up here, up in your, in, in your nose. I don't want it in my nose. There's bad things in there already. <laughs> we don't want it in there. Uh uh. <laughs> yeah. Uh-uh. So this gentleman's father was um, um, a composer, as far as I remember, a film composer. And uh, he was very proud of being someone from a, a musical family. So let's go listen to... Let's go watch a video on YouTube, because he will uh, tell you a lot about how he made that song and what his idea of electronic music is. I'm making an exception. We usually listen to songs, you know, music on this podcast, but it's such a good video. I will, I'll also put it in the show notes. The story behind the song for Oxygen number four. Hang on a second. Jana is singing the song of her people. Hmm. I'm a little curious if the microphone will pick it up. Not right now. 
Well, that just means that my sound suppression is good because she was really loud. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we will go listen to Jean-Michel Jarre tell us about how he made that song. Because you can really work with your hands in a very, uh, very, uh, yes, tactile, uh, emotional way. I'm just trying to figure out now how he would ever perform some of these things live, given how many layers are in these songs. Like, does he just like jump like a spider from keyboard to keyboard? <laughs> No, he's got musicians helping. Okay. Okay, okay. Yeah. But it was really interesting to look at the synthesizer and I'm going, that's not what I thought they were talking about. But clearly, and you can, it looks like, looks like, probably isn't, uh, taking the machinery that is used to, when you record, to, to tune the sounds and just using that to just make sounds. And then he bangs on the top of it and I'm going, yeah, percussive maintenance is music. Yeah, that, that came, and it made this funny twangy kind of noise and then you, you, whatever you do with that, you know, my God, can you imagine what this man would have done if he'd had like a whole computer like we have now? Can you imagine mm -hmm. what he would have what he would have created like is he still alive is he still making music yeah the the newest thing we will hear from him is from 2016 okay uh, which is pretty standard electronica but he's one of the parents of electronica so right we'll see. but at the same time just because it sounds standard doesn't mean that the method he used to make it was standard or he might have chosen mm -hmm. to use the older methods, the methods that he started with. Or, But I can't imagine that such a person as this would not have at least gone to experiment with whatever new stuff came up, whether or not he chose to release whatever he made out of that. Yeah. I can't imagine yeah. that he wouldn't have been excited by the possibilities. Oh, yeah. New uh, improved keyboards were coming out. Um, I don't know if they had sampling at, at this stage in the mid-70s. It sounds like they it. They probably did. I mean, that kind of was what he was implying when he banged on the top of the synthesizer and said you could record it and loop it. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of the same thing. Yep. When I was getting into Depeche Mode, they talked about the, 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 these nice machines that they could use and drum machines and stuff. And they really had a ball when they realized that they could go outside and bang with hammers on some metal surfaces and sample that and distort it and play a riff from it because you you can change the notes on it or use it as percussion. Right. So he was probably doing some of that too. You can take every possible kind of sound you could create using every possible kind of thing. The singing of birds and yes, he was putting the white noise because his tape wasn't great. But at some point, you know, you could go out and actually record the sound of the wind mm -hmm. rushing across. Yeah. You know, you'd probably have to do interesting things with the microphone in order to not just get sound, you know, terrible crackling yeah. noise. But even that would be useful and cool and interesting. And this must have been the beginning of uh, what we call ambient music now, or uh, at least the ambient um, aspects of what we listen to. I think that's some of it. I think it also led heavily into what in America we call club music. With mm -hmm. the, yeah. uh, it's 
not the heavy syncopated beats that underlie club music, but the stuff on top. The mm-hmm. more like I think this led into that, and then someone added those heavier beats for dancing, so that you could pick up because it was listening to Oxygen was really good, but you couldn't really pick up a rhythm out of it. Mm-hmm. It was it yep. was more it was more like listening to a stream which has no real rhythm. Pretty but not rhythmic. And one of the things he does that creates this effect is that he makes a bass line and then the melody doesn't exactly follow it. It starts on the next beat sometimes. It it's funny, it's interesting. Okay. Mm. He mentioned that his mum was a bit uh, skeptical when she saw that he was naming his album after a gas and that he put a skull on the cover. <laughs> Moms are always skeptical on what you do. <laughs> this has been my experience. Was... They're always a little skeptical. Hmm. She was always very supportive, but this really seemed odd to her. Um, he said that uh, this, uh, the earth bearing her skull was uh, an, an ecological message. Something to worry about because... Probably, probably he was thinking about pollution and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's okay. why there was a skull in the earth. I mean, okay. And I, I started wondering when did uh, uh, climate activism really start blossoming? I haven't looked into this, but he was influenced by it. Yeah, no, I think that there. I think it dates back at least to the seventies. Mm-hmm. It's that one's really hard for me to trace thinking about it because from my personal experience all it's done is intensify but also be less listened to but if I think about some of the things I've read I'm certain it can be traced back at least to the late 70s. Mm. Yep. Uh actually let me look something up. Really quick. Uh, okay. So, one of the key pushes behind the entire concept of environmentalism was the release of the book Silent Spring, and that was released in 1962. Mm-hmm. So, it would have okay. gone back at least that far, if not farther. Mm-hmm. Something that he was growing up with because mm-hmm. he was 20 something. Okay, I, see. Um, I do think that it the emphasis of it has shifted over time. The emphasis earlier on was on how humans raised their food and indiscriminate cutting of forests and things, and now it's shifted much more towards uh, atmospheric stuff and wholesale climate change, not just um, change in smaller areas. But that's mm-hmm. a different discussion. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Let's go listen to a song from the next album. It's called It's called Equinox, and this will be uh, Equinox Part Four on YouTube. We we'll, again we have a futuristic video. He just wasn't that clever about naming things, was he? Part Four. It's like movements. This album has several movements. He's, uh... he's got some classical stuff in his mind. I need to do more research for four. I smart off about that. Let's go listen okay. to Jean-Michel Jarre Equinox, Equinox Part 4. Mm-hmm. 
I need to play that again. I need to just play that on a loop. Whenever I'm feeling <laughs> frustrated and annoyed, I need to just play that on a loop. And it will occupy yeah. bits of my brain that are busy doing things I shouldn't be doing. Right. It's so immersive because every different sound is, is so different. It has a different frequency, is doing different interesting things. Well, there's just, there's a lot going on there, but it all comes together. But I do mm -hmm. think, uh, watching the video, listening to that one, it reminded me quite sharply of the old Dune movie. Let me go. The one, uh, the one directed by David Lynch. Both mm -hmm. the, the, both the video and the sound reminded me of that. I don't know that the sound is, is as appropriate, but it did remind me of that. Was that made in the 70s too? I think so. Let's go find out. I remember just clips from it. I remember Kyle McLaughlin. Was that was 84. Uh-huh. Why though? I don't know. He's I just don't know. pressing all the possible buttons in the video and playing electronic drums. I don't know. I don't know. I did notice that that one had a much, much more uh, obvious rhythm to it. That you had the, the mm -hmm. early low bass beats yeah yeah and a little robot that was right there when when something sounded like robot robot voice yeah and the bits of the video where there's like a dozen keyboards stacked <laughs> up and it's like how do you even reach the top one honey you'll get up yeah you'll get up i don't think you're even that tall it's and I say it's immersive because when I listen to metal, things just kind of blend. The guitarist is playing at the same rhythm as the drummer, and the bass blends with the guitars. But when you listen to something like this, it's just woo, swimming in something really deep. So I got into this guy when I was eight or nine years old. Um, early 90s he had a greatest hits album my mom bought that and i know it's the greatest hits album but i loved every song of it even though they were from they were very different and from different decades and it kind of blew my mind as a child let's go listen to another part of equinox equinox part five okay Let's listen to Equinox Part 5 by Jean-Michael Jarre. You're going to have to start teaching me French. Michel. Michel. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Let's listen to the music. Yeah. What is that creature with the spy glasses that he likes so well? What about glasses? Sorry? What is that creature with the spy glasses? It appears in this video, it appeared in the last video. What is it? Yeah. This is um wait, I gotta send you this is, that is like the cover his of the It's the cover out of the Equinox album. I'm gonna send it to you now. 
and uh, it's uh, it's from a painting that he saw, and he talked to the genre. He talked to the artist, and uh, they put it on the album. And the piece is called Stage Right. Okay. Because everybody's looking at you from the when you go on stage. Copy and send it to Panya. I'm really fond of his uh, album art. Always have been. Looks like he shot this one in America. He was climbing skyscrapers and stuff. There are skyscrapers in other countries. Yeah, but there was something about the streets that he was walking after that. I was. Something. I got distracted by the music. Mm. It's nice. It's kind of classical, kind of baroque. But also all these new electronic sounds in it. It reminds me a little bit sometime uh, back at the beginning of this year, Jana was playing with the air registers on the floor and we decided she needed a theremin for enrichment, which is exactly those kind of electronic noises. Yeah. And he may have used a theremin. I've seen him with a theremin on stage, but I can't really hear it in these recordings. They're not very loud. It also turns out they're very expensive. Yeah, probably. Well, okay, that's not fair. I guess compared to a good guitar, they're not, actually. But when you're talking about buying something for a kitten for enrichment, (laughs) $100 (laughs) seems pretty expensive. (laughs) It would make some good videos. You would go viral, though, if you wanted to do that. That's probably true. But we didn't buy it for Mm -hmm. her, and I don't know where she is right now. (laughs) They all went downstairs with Papa. Mm -hmm. Mm. So end of 70s, early 80s, things are really happening for Jean-Michel. I can't remember which year it was, but it was that time. He was uh, getting ready for a big outdoor show in Paris. And he looks down on the avenue, the Champs-Élysées, and he sees this huge blackness on it. And he thinks that it's some sort of a shadow cast by the sunset. It but was it's all actually the, the crowd. people waiting for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's stage fright, if you like. <laughs> Holy cow. He said, it took me a while. It took me several months to recover from that show. It was more than he expected. In the beginning of the 80s, he gets his first invitation to go to China. Ooh. And he's very excited about that because China has, as he says, just come out of a period when they are very closed off. And during that window, he was the only Western artist who managed to perform there. So uh. he said they, they kept replaying his shows, his show on TV for a long time. Huh. And again, big crowd. That sounds like something else I want to research. Mm-hmm. But I'm up to my ears in research, in historical research already. I don't need to add anything else right now. Yeah. The 80s go by with a lot of success. He gets to make friends with uh, some American astronauts. Ooh. He's, talk- he's talking to NASA to play on the occasion of the 25th anniversary of NASA. That would be mm. really a part. Did he? He was, yeah, he did. Uh, it was planned to be after the launch of the Challenger, mm. but the Challenger exploded. But that launch. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It was, it must have been really upsetting because I read that um, 
uh, children in schools were watching live. Yes, it was the one of the reasons that children in schools were paying so much attention to it is because one of the astronauts was the first teacher to go into space. They were developing yeah. this program called Teachers in Space, and she was going to give a couple of lessons from from space. And the idea was to get kids interested in space and the sciences. And then mm -hmm. because the O-rings were not as flexible under cold temperatures, and they chose to launch on a day that was unusually, like, spectacularly cold for Florida. Hmm. Uh so, I mean, the short version of what happened is that some of the materials that were intended to flex and close off certain spaces between the fuel tanks and the outside did not perform mm -hmm. as expected under the extremely cold temperatures. And so flaming fuel literally spewed out of these tanks and between that and the vibrations that were caused, the shuttle ripped itself to shreds. Yeah. And he had a, a, a friend, one of the astronauts was his friend. He had met them all on board. Yeah. And that was, it was also a special launch because I don't think it was for the first time, but there were, there was more than one woman on board. There was both mm -hmm. Sally Ride and Krista McAuliffe which was somewhat unusual. Kronos, mm -hmm. no hissing. Oh. Um, the concert happened anyway in honor of the astronauts of in uh, April 86 in Houston. And it was, a, it was a pretty spectacular show with projections on the skyscrapers and fireworks and everything. But we will watch a, a, diff a very similar thing, a very similar production from a few years after that, which was filmed in Paris. So let's go, go watch the song Second Rendezvous, uh, live at uh, Paris, La Défense. Jean-Michel Jarre. Voilà, Jean-Michel Jarre. <laughs> Oof, my ears are ringing now. Mm. So much intensity. Fireworks? All of it. All of it. Yeah. Just so much. But I can see what you mean more about the classical now because it, what it was doing there was, was the rising and then the crescendo at the end. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was also interesting that uh, it was part conductor and part participant. And even the sound of the fireworks was part of the whole composition. Mm -hmm. And it takes a yeah. pretty consummate musician. Because there's no way that when he originally recorded that, he recorded the sounds of fireworks going off in it or anything. No. And so, but to to add that sound, and not just the light show, but the timing, it reminded me of the shows like I've been to a bunch of different kinds of concerts and some of them the focus is pretty much just on the musician there's no there's not a lot of of light play there's not a lot of of changing of costumes there's no pyrotechnics and in other 
other concerts I've been to, the stagecraft is as much an important part of the show as the music. And this felt like the latter. Mm -hmm. The stagecraft was as much an important part of, of the music would not have been as good without some of that stagecraft, I think. Yep. And he had a choir, uh-huh. kids. There were and some adults fireworks in there. as part of their music. Yeah. And all these musicians around him to help. He had a drummer. But it was it was grandiose and it was grandiose in a very Bach way. I don't know how much you've listened to Bach the Father. This was like uh uh Toccata and, and Fugue. Yeah, it did. I didn't think of that until you said it, but yes. It was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was also and he a was bit having like so much fun. Oh yes. It was also a bit like the eighteen twelve overture. If you've ever seen that done live. It's a bit like uh... that. That's the one with the cannons. So it was a bit like that. And it took me a couple of minutes to realize why he was wearing the sunglasses. And then I went, that's a laser harp. And we don't, he doesn't know how those are going to reflect off. That's bad. He has to protect his eyes. Mm-hmm. And gloves. You already mm-hmm. had the gloves. Yeah. The laser harp was amazing, okay. though. At this point, if you've somehow missed about uh, the existence of Jean-Michel Jarre, this is where you learn about it. Because you know, you know what, what I just watched? Dude that was playing a laser harp. Right. At an enormous free concert in Paris. Mm-hmm. So if you were How looking... How did he even finance this? <laughs> uh, donations, probably. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to bet that some of that links back to something that we don't think about a lot with the arts anymore, although it has, it's referenced, but we don't think about it in the same way anymore. It used to be five, six hundred years ago, if you were an artist of any stripe, from Bach to Mozart and on back, you had a patron. There was someone who had quite a lot of money who essentially paid you room and board and and financed your equipment to create art. And it was was a feather in their cap that they had a magnificent artist of whatever stripe on their staff, essentially. And occasionally Mm -hmm. you would produce art specifically for your patron. And then sometime, Mm -hmm. I think, in the 19th, 20th century, that sort of fell out out of phase for the idea that uh, once you'd created a piece of art, it would be duplicated and sold individually and sort of everybody became your patron. And now we have this site, Patreon, that is absolutely 100% named because patron, because patronage. Yeah. And it, it, I think, goes back to that idea that a person or, or a family would sponsor an artist and now the family is their fans the people who care about them and wish to to promote their art but it's the same basic idea that it's not that you provided us something up front and we gave you money for it it's we're giving you money and then eventually you will provide us something and so Mm -hmm. i think a concert like this was probably funded in part by wealthy people in europe uh possibly partly by the government 
I mean, imagine yeah, the tourism draw that would have been. People would have traveled mm -hmm. mm, probably from all over the world in 1990 to come and see that, to be, mm -hmm. to participate, to say I was there. And while they're there, they have to get a hotel room. They have to eat. They're probably going to shop. Why would you go to Paris if you didn't do all the other things there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. And again, the, the whole avenue was filled until the old Arc of Triumph. Well, while he was playing just in front of the new Arc of Triumph. It was huge. And he had these tall buildings in this neighborhood of, of Paris to use as canvas. As far as I remember, in, in Houston, they dropped canvases so it would be easier to project on them. This must have been what he did there, too. Could be. Some buildings are kind of designed for that to be projected onto, yeah. but that's... Uh, I think that's a much more recent thing. Mm -hmm. Probably not in the 80s. I don't okay. know. I don't know. Uh, it does say in the description for the specific link that you gave me that over 2 million people were there. That's a lot of tourism. I'm just saying. <laughs> mm -hmm. Imagine the rehearsals. That must have been the spectacle itself. That must have made people excited. Yeah. Hearing that. Okay. I remember um, in the hype of uh, the millennium, hearing that he was performing uh, one of those huge shows in Giza, the end of December 1999. Oh, that's cool. And let's go skip a few, skip a decade and a half during which he, he hasn't taken a break. He continues making these pretty amazing albums. And let's listen to a song called Brick England in uh, collaboration with Pet Shop Boys. You can get it on Spotify. Okay, let's listen to Brick England. In Brick Like a lot of things with lyrics, I have trouble keeping track of both the lyrics and what the rest of the music is doing. Mm -hmm. So if he did anything particularly interesting there, I probably didn't catch it. Because <laughs> I was too busy hearing the lyrics. It was a very peaceful description of um, a modern town. Yeah, rising and falling, growing, changing... And the change of, of day into night. It was a description of an English town or city without the complaining about the weather. <laughs> that never happens. <laughs> yeah. The, he, he added a sort of uh, electronic bass voice. Yeah. Um, it, that seemed to be saying, oh, it I seemed to be changing. That was nice. It wasn't only Neil singing, but this electronic voice added to it. Yeah. And I fangirled a lot because I love the Pet Shop Boys and I love him. And they made such a such a peaceful yet colorful thing together. Yeah. Very nice. And it was, I, I thought as soon as it started that, oh yes, here is what I meant when I thought about what new things he would have to play with in this era of computer music 
and it was right there that it was I don't know that it necessarily sounds any better but there are things that you can do with the increased computerization increased digitality that I don't know would have been possible in the 70s and 80s simply because the equipment wasn't capable of it yet Mm -hmm. And now he has these tighter sounds, these more, it's like an aural equivalent to the difference between regular definition video and high definition video. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. that's, that's what it's like. And I'm sure that artists and and audiophiles will tell me, oh, there's been high def sound for ages and okay, but I didn't hear it. Yeah. I didn't didn't hear it and I didn't know what to listen to to find it. There were a lot of limitations to what he could do with with a keyboard in the 70s when he started and in the 80s. Yeah. And even if he's doing... He's using the same skills. Now things, I suppose, now things can be done easier and quicker. Probably. And I do mm-hmm. think, especially with digital and computer stuff, the idea of, of sampling a thing or many things, I think it must be easier to take all of those clips and lay them together. And mm-hmm. position them so so exactly how you want them, you know, not just second by second, but milliseconds and, and you know, nanoseconds even. So mm-hmm. absolutely precise. It's great for the nerd and the perfectionist. Yep. Although, as I think a number of artists will tell you, uh, perfect is the enemy of good. You can get yourself trapped as an artist of any stripe in the desperate desire to have the thing you're creating be perfect. And you will drive yourself into a place where you are never willing to share it because it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. And yet, as a creator, you must learn to accept that the imperfections are something sometimes what makes something beautiful Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things he says when he says that he's he still performs on 20 30 year old keyboards and he's perfectly fine with something glitching and he knows that the audience will be forgiving because he's doing the real thing in front of them right and honestly that goes back to when he was talking about the old synthesizer and he was banging on it and going this makes an interesting noise but if it had been a perfect piece of equipment it would never have made that noise yep yeah he said that's not something the manufacturer would have intended Mm -mm. and if they had known it would do that they might have tried to make it so it wouldn't do that Mm -hmm. yep and it actually it goes into even deeper than what we think of normal uh, normally as creative things for example um, especially with the increased focus on so-called AI uh, Mm -hmm. one of the things that uh, early adopters of that technology noticed 
is that if they didn't create some imperfections in the human faces, human characters that they were using, the audience didn't find them as appealing. Yeah. Perfect symmetry in a human face yeah. is off-putting. It's not normal. There mm -hmm. has to be some imperfection. There has to be some imbalance. And for all that it comes to the surface with the, the so-called AI, all you have to do is look at, oh, was it Cindy Crawford, I think? The model mm -hmm. with the mole. Yeah. With that mole yeah, it's her. that she has or had. Uh, I don't know mm -hmm. if she's had it removed. But anyway, that was that was a huge part of what made her attractive was that imperfection. That she never mm -hmm. tried to hide it. And yeah. I think the same thing is true of this music that there are for all that he has so much greater control with what's available now, the the potential imperfections, the existing imperfections make it better. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't change the fact that I get pissed off every time I drop a stitch in my cross stitch. <laughs> <laughs> Follow the uh, pattern, darn it. Okay. So this is this was a two-part album, um, and he had collaborations with DJs who probably went crazy when they when they realized that they would be working with him. And pop artists and R&B artists, it was a, a great thing. One of the collaborations was with Edward Snowden. Um, oh, Jacques my. went to Moscow, and um, I, I, he he went to Moscow. I don't know if he went to record Snowden. Probably, I think that pro Snowden probably recorded himself. Uh, and in the middle of this techno electronica track, there's a moment of uh, Snowden with different effects on his voice, talking about uh, privacy and uh freedom of speech mm. and then the techno continues it was called exit interesting oh one of them was with hans zimmer that's one of my favorite mm -hmm. i love him anytime he scores a soundtrack it's wonderful i yeah. love his work and i have to go listen to to the album again yeah so here he is jean-michel Jarre. Um, an old love of mine, and I'm glad you liked him. Mm, what else are the cats doing? Well, they wandered off, and then they came back, and now they seem to have disappeared again. I mean, cats is cats. Jana, All of them as a group. Uh, yeah, there's no cats in here that I can see. Yeah, No cats. I don't know where they went. Ow. Um... Jonna is over a year old now, actually, although we still refer to her as the kitten. And I have a sneaking suspicion that the yelling she's been doing for the last day or so has been because she's in heat. Oh, is it time? Because we never did get her... we never did get her fixed. Mm hmm And while she is a very chatty kind of girl... This is a different voice, different. She doesn't usually say meow meow. She says mer mer. And there's mm -hmm. been a lot of meow meow over the last day or so. Hmm. So and then sometime in the middle of all of that, they they brought me some toys. And Miss Murray has been very friendly lately. I think we had a long period of 
four or five days where it was just gray and cloudy and it didn't really rain it was just gray and horrible and I think she has been coming to hang out with me a lot since the sun came back out and she does this silly thing like all of them actually have these weird little things they do when they lie down like Jana like sort of scoots her back legs out from under herself it's the silliest thing I've ever seen she sort of she sort of scoots her butt out from under herself and and lies down and Mirari will like turn her head over put the top of her skull on the floor and then roll her whole spine down oh here's a buddy here's a buddy would you like My to buddy. come say hello buddy buddy's like no I'm just gonna sit here and be handsome yeah <laughs> buddy tried to come outside with us yesterday when we were putting the dragons up and I told him no he may not do that oh buddies no, no, I'm not allowed to push you over. No, I'm going to scratch your tummy, buddy. Buddy tummies. Oh, my goodness. Yep. <laughs> so, we had okay. to change which cat food we were feeding them because the stuff we'd been feeding them we can't find anymore, which is very frustrating. And you're not really supposed to do that. You're not really supposed to suddenly change what you give them. It's mm. supposed to be... They get used to it, and it's not... <sighs> Let me back that up a second. Like, if you're feeding them wet cat food and you give them different flavors, that's fine. You know, as long as, as the variety continues. But if you're feeding them dry cat food and you change which brand you're giving them or whatever, suddenly um, some kitties really prefer a brand and they can just get upset tummies from the sudden change. Mm -hmm. so far they've seemed to be okay and they don't seem to be rejecting the new food which they might also do they seem to be going oh it's cat food okay nom 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 okay so so far it's going well so far it seems to be going well okay you want to tell us about a, an author let's see whom should I give you today I shall give you Jacqueline Carey she how do I even start this there's so much here um, so I first ran across her it's probably been 20 years now um, just randomly rummaging around in a bookshop and seeing a book that had um, a pretty woman with her back turned to the artist and this incredible rose tattoo climbing up her back and I picked it up and I looked at it and I read the back matter and it was the story of a woman who was touched by her gods to feel pleasure in pain. Oh, there goes Jana again. Sing, screaming the song of her people. Uh, oh, I heard her this time. <laughs> yeah, she's screaming at the top of her little furry lungs. What the heck? I wonder if I can summon her. Well, I summoned Buddy. Let's see. Ah, so, so I picked up the book, and then I bought it. And at this point, I think Jacqueline Carey has published something like 20 books in three, maybe four different series. But the one 
which I have always been the most focused on, is probably best referred to as the Stories of Teradange. And it is an alternate history-ish of a land uh, it's essentially mapped onto the map of Europe. And our, our main characters appear in the land that would be France. But in this world... Uh, is, land, land of Angels. Okay. Yes, in fact. Get it. Okay. And the basic back history goes that at the time of the death of the equivalent of Jesus, Yeshua, um, the blood that he shed and the tears of Mary Magdalene mixed and the earth goddess brought it to life as a being known as Eloa, who then, because God was busy mourning the death of Yeshua, wandered the earth. And there were some angels that didn't really approve of the fact that God was ignoring Eloa, since Eloa was effectively his grand God's grandson, and came down to earth to help succor him and take care of him. And eventually, after many adventures that we don't actually learn a lot about, they come to the land that would come to be known as Terdange, which was a peaceful pastoral kind of place. And they settle there and they beget children and many things happen but it's it's all essentially peaceful and then god realizes that you know they're they're having children and that their children are are potentially going to take over the earth and and he comes to eloa and says you can't do this you have to come home and eloa accepts a knife from one of the angels and cuts his palm and bleeds which angels don't do and he Mm. says i'm mortal or or part mortal and these are my children and I will not abandon them make a place where we can go because we will not go back to heaven and he makes a place or or God and and the earth goddess make a place and Eloi goes but ever since the land has been called Terdange and there are many folk pretty much every character you meet can trace their descent back to one of those angels Except the one that gave him the knife. And that's a significant element of the story is the fact that that angel begat no children. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot of clarity in timelines as far as that early stuff goes. But at the time that the initial story begins, Terdange is a thoroughly settled kingdom. They occupy pretty much everything that is modern France. They have... uh, settled uh, relationships with a number of other nations in the area, including uh, La Serenissima, Venice, and uh, Aragon. And the kingdom is in, call it a, a little bit of political turmoil because of the usual sort of crisis that befalls kingdoms. There's, there's some question on the air. The, the initial heir died in a battle with the equivalent of the Germanic tribes, the Scaldi. Mm-hmm. And his daughter is not considered worthy for a number of reasons. Not, it has nothing to do with her femininity. 
But there are concerns about her age. There are concerns about her emotional strength. And there are concerns about other families' ability to manipulate her. But all this lies in the background because our focus character is a young girl who, for one reason, for she's told over into indentured servitude for to the houses of the courtesans. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to one of the most significant elements of the culture of Terdange. The highest precept they hold is love as thou wilt. The second highest precept they hold is uh, consent. Consent is sacred, which puts, you know, the proper boundaries around the whole idea of love as thou wilt. Uh, because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, that could get really freaking out of hand. But what it means ultimately is that there is no form of love between two persons which is forbidden. There is, or even mm-hmm. multiple persons. There are characters we encounter that have multiple lovers. There are characters who are married and have lovers. There are characters who share lovers. There are gay people and lesbian people. Most of the figures in the story are pretty much bisexual because that's just, they don't think about gender when they fall in love kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And partly because of the angelic blood, they are also described as one of the most beautiful peoples in the world. And yet there are portions of the story which almost go out of their way to explain that beauty doesn't necessarily mean physical beauty that someone may be beautiful because they have a lovely voice uh it describes the beauty of age you know there Hmm. there's a lot in this book that while it's not brought to the surface takes a lot of what we in the modern world think of as as limitations and stipulations on love and beauty and just stomps on them. That's not how it is in this world. It's just not. And so naturally, as part of this, the idea of a courtesan or um, they do use the word whore, although I don't think it carries quite the same meaning, or someone who makes love for money is regarded pretty highly in their culture. Um, Mm -hmm. There are the 13 houses in which folk are explicitly and specifically trained to make love with each house has a kind of a specific focus on the way that they tend to view love, but that's not a limitation so much as a focus and there are many folk who are not affiliated with these houses who also do this plus the priests and priestesses of their goddess of love the angel nama also do this so Mm -hmm. one of the women from one of the houses falls in love with another uh person from teradange a person in the city And we start to learn in this story about some of the limitations that culture places on the idea of love as thou wilt. You know, they're going, uh, the the house that she belongs to says, okay, you can, you can be in love with him, but we're not paying for you anymore. You, You will no longer receive upkeep if you choose to commit yourself only to him. And... You know, on the one hand, that makes sense. If she's no longer actually working, they're not going to pay her. 
And on the other hand, he's kind of a spendthrift and not really that good at what he does, and they don't have a lot to live on. Hmm. So they sell their girl child into indentured servitude in order to have money to go off and make one last trade or try to make their name or, you know, generally make a living. Mm-hmm. And now that I've rambled around the story a while, that's our main character. She the is child. Named the child. She is named Phaedra. And they sell her into the first of the 13 houses, House Sirius, whose focus is on the fleeting value of beauty. That something is loved most because it will die. Because it will pass. Oh. Uh, and Phaedra's not what you'd call terribly biddable, honestly. She's uh, she's pretty mischievous, and she doesn't quite entirely feel like she fits into the houses. I mean, they don't... They explicitly and carefully do not force children to remain attached to one of the houses where their personality does not lie. So mm-hmm. in the early part of the story, Phaedra befriends uh, another young girl whom it's said she will go off to, um, I think it's House Heliotrope, whose canon is Joy, because she's such a cheerful and happy child. And mm-hmm. there's another child that is fascinated by the mythologies and the stories that they're told about their history and the idea is that he'll probably go to House Genetian, who focuses on dreams and mysticism, that kind of thing. But there are two houses of the Night Court that are not not quite like the others. That is because these are the houses that focus on what they refer to as the sharper pleasures. Uh, one, mm-hmm. one house focuses on training its members to be dominants, the other on training its members to be submissives. Mm-hmm. And when Phaedra accidentally pricks herself with a pen and then is absolutely fascinated by the pain, they realize that the house that she should go to is the house of submissives. However, mm-hmm. that's not where she ends up. Because of some physical traits that she also displays, what she ends up doing is having her indenture bought out by a young nobleman who then raises her in concert with another boy that he has adopted to be courtesans, but also to be spies. Mm. And the whole rest of Phaedra's story is how this early training and her noble benefactor's connections entangle her in the politics of the day. She travels a pretty significant chunk of the world, ends up adopting the child of her greatest enemy, defeats a fallen angel by virtue of acquiring and speaking the name of God, and then puts an end to an ancient evil attempting to return. Yeah. And every single element of this is by virtue of her 
her desire, well, desire, her, her ability to submit, to accept pain, to, mm-hmm. it's almost, it's very difficult to describe, actually, because the story doesn't, the story is not full of, oh, she gets beaten and raped in this, although that does happen. But because she is capable of submitting and capable of finding release in submission in a way that very few people are, she can wind her way into the confidence of people who might not trust her. Mm-hmm. And she can, well, it, it, as is made fairly clear in the first book, most of her clients don't really consider the idea that because she's hanging half upside down on a whipping cross, whipping cross after having someone's initials cut into her skin, she's still listening to what they're saying. They don't think about that. Oh. They don't think about <laughs> the fact that she's still paying attention. That even in the throes of deepest ecstasy, she is still listening and cataloging and thinking about everything to do with what is going on that just because she is kneeling on the floor after having been smacked with a crop that she's not also listening to the person who just smacked her read a letter out loud demanding uh troops or that kind of thing Mm -hmm. like it takes the idea of pillow talk and just runs with it all the way out to the farthest edge Hmm. and her ability to submit is key to that defeat of the ancient evil and not in the sense that she not because she makes them love her although that is in fact exactly what happens he falls in love with her and that is but because he loves her she is inside his trust and she can kill him Mm -hmm. and it's not it there's no pretense that that doesn't hurt her Mm-hmm. There's no pretense that she didn't come to care for him a little bit too, and that it doesn't hurt her to have to kill this person, mm-hmm. and she does it anyway. There's a a sentence that you might have heard me, you specifically might have heard me use before. It's not possible to count the living. I got that from these books. Um, mm, there is, sense. there, I don't think it was, it, it might be a direct quote, I'm not 100% sure, but there's a point at which Fedra ends up sort of accidentally breaking into a cleansing ceremony where a person who is uh, drowning in blood guilt goes to be cleansed of that guilt. And what happens in the ceremony is that she and this person are confronted with the realization and the knowledge of all the people who have died because of their choices. Oh, Which is a really yeah. hard thing to bear. But because Fedra broke into the ceremony and was not intended to be there, she cannot be absolved. But what the priestess tells her afterwards is that the the ritual only shows you the people who died it doesn't show you the people you saved we cannot know the count of the living we don't know Mm -hmm. how many people's lives we've changed or saved by the choices we've made it's really 
most of the time only possible to point to the things to the people who died it's like proving a mm. negative you you can't know how many people's lives were changed you can't know you know if you even if the thing that you did you think is terrible even if for example you are you shoot a guy with a gun who is threatening um, school children mm-hmm. and the guilt of killing that person weighs on you but you don't know how much difference you made to all the people who are still alive you don't know how many people are still alive because of what you did yeah that's a good perspective that's helpful so that's one of the things that I pulled out of out of these books uh, it comes in three trilogies the story of Terdange uh, with a fourth one just beginning and the first trilogy is Phaedra's story the second trilogy is Imriel's story who is the young man she adopted and it takes place um, some dozen years or so after hers comes to a close when he's matured and the third trilogy is the story of a descendants not directly of theirs but of characters that we encountered and were important in the first two trilogies each one ranges farther and farther and farther out into the world and by the time of the third trilogy our main character goes to China and to South America mm-hmm. like they, they it, the world gets bigger and bigger and bigger every time this new trilogy is going back to the beginning of Phaedra's trilogy and telling the story from the perspective of her love, of her consort. And her consort is a young man named Jocelyn who was given over by his parents to a group known as the Castellene Brotherhood. And they are committed to protecting and fighting and they're they're essentially really elite bodyguards Mm -hmm. and they are linked to that one angel who never had any offspring that he he did not agree with the way god treated eloa but he also did not agree with the idea that they could then just do whatever the hell they wanted to do and so Hmm. cassiel referred to himself as the perfect companion And that's what they train to be. And they're also trained to be celibate. Hmm. (laughs) So he's bound over to this, what he thinks of as a dissolute courtesan who offends quite a bit of what he's been taught to revere. Um, Hmm. They're they're alone of everyone in Terdange. They don't place physical love very highly. And they're honestly kind of taught not to get emotionally attached to their charges, too. They're, they're very, very unique within the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the gods have different ideas. And they, they fall absolutely thoroughly in love. Uh, there, there's a scene repeated a couple of times within the books where someone asks him, how did he know that he was in love with Fedra? And he says, I tried doing without her. And it really didn't work. It did. He was not happy. He was lonely. He was miserable. He missed her. Yeah, and that's how he knew. Mm-hmm. But there's quite a bit of what goes on in in their books together that 
promises to be very interesting from his perspective. We've had the first book, and it actually spends quite a bit of that book covering how he was raised and how he was trained, which we learned very little about in the original stories. Mm-hmm. So we have already learned. There are definitely some scenes in this newest book that are almost but not quite direct repeats of scenes we saw and of course as you get into the second half of the book you pretty much know exactly what's going on but it's still Mm -hmm. very interesting to look at from the perspective of a character who thinks and reacts very differently from our main character Jacqueline Carey has also written a duology which takes essentially the same story as the Lord of the Rings and looks at it from the perspective of the villain as if the villain were uh, were a person who was pushed into the circumstances that they were in as if they were not intrinsically evil. Hmm. I don't consider it as well written as the Terradage books but I think some of that may have to do with the compression of the story and there's just there's just something that really appeals to me about the Terradage books uh, she has also written a a modern uh, modern urban fantasy duology called uh, Santa Olivia and a modern fantasy trilogy called Agents of Hell. I haven't read those in a long time, so I can't really describe them very well, unfortunately. Uh, Mm -hmm. She did a treatment of Caliban's story from uh, one of Shakespeare's plays. Why Hmm. can't I remember the name of the play? Not The Tempest. Caliban from The Tempest. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh... So she's done a treatment of that story and she's done sort of a compressed version again of one of the main threads of the Terdan story, the idea of meeting and collecting people from all different cultures and drawing them together with their special skills in order to defeat uh, an evil. And mm-hmm. an evil that got that way, not because it was intrinsically evil, but because of consequences that were out of its control. Um, which does not mean it doesn't have to be defeated, merely that it mm-hmm. is possible to have some pity for it. And that's called Starless. Uh, it's the story of a world where the stars represented gods and for various heavenly reasons they were all thrown out of the sky so in the early parts of the in in most of the story the idea of there being stars in the sky is very strange for our characters <laughs> uh, and the story goes along collecting various characters who have been blessed or touched by various gods for certain things um one of them has a mighty scream another can throw lightning from her fist Uh, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing and again as in Terre d'Ange 
we are presented with characters who are without this being central to their character elements of modern society that might be considered someone somewhat marginalized uh, one of the main characters is a girl who was raised as a boy hmm. um, in the case of this particular character she did not know that she was physically a girl which causes quite a bit of distress when when they find out at but that character chooses to continue to refer to themselves for much of the story as he although we are given opportunities to see them investigate what it might mean to be more female and i believe by the end of the story they choose to be somewhat in the middle to be essentially non-binary how was the keep the secret kept from them well the earliest part of the story, they're too young for any of the major secondary sex characteristics to be relevant. Mm -hmm. uh, so they don't have breasts or, or anything. And they live in a, a sort of a monk monastery space that is populated only by males. Mm -hmm. They don't know anything different. They were literally raised that way from a baby almost from birth mm -hmm. so they without other women to compare to living in a culture which because that character is there chooses to prioritize solitary bathing that kind of thing uh, and then mm -hmm. at the point in the story where they begin to discover oh by the way you're never going to be the kind of husky strong muscular male that you idealize they are also presented with a magical artifact which they may choose to take up which will at the very least prevent them having menstruation but they mm -hmm. do have to figure out how to cope with breasts and they do have to cope with the idea that to a certain extent they've been lied to their whole life yeah and they have to cope with the idea that the physical shape which they idealized is not something that their body is capable of attaining that mm -hmm. this doesn't mean that they aren't strong that they are not a talented warrior but they're never going to be a broad-shouldered muscular person because that's not the way their body is made mm -hmm. they have to cope with that idea um, and this character's lover is a crippled woman she cannot mm. walk she has to have sticks to walk with uh, she's able to be healed at least a little bit so that she does not struggle to breathe quite so much but she is never healed to the point that she can walk on her own mm -hmm. and again while this is part of the character and plays into thing you know if they're running away from something then someone has to snatch this character up and carry her kind mm -hmm. of thing but it's not the existence of their disability is not the hinge on which the story swings yeah. it's simply a part of their character just the right way to include different people right um because this is a thoroughly fantasy world there is a character reflect whose species or, or group is referred to as a mayfly because they don't live very long 
Hmm. Uh, and they're they're very fast, and he can kind of fly. He's got wings. He can sort of fly, but not really. Uh, but but he is extremely talented with with his sword, and you know, all of this kind of thing. And he he matures fast, and his life will be short. Right, he matures quite quickly, and he gets confronted with some interesting choices too. Because as far as his culture is concerned. Um, you find a queen and commit yourself to them and you breed with them and the queen he commits to is our crippled girl who is not of his culture and thoroughly committed to our non-binary person, neither of which are interested in including a third. So he has to figure out how can I be committed to my queen without breeding with her? Wait a minute. Can he look for another queen? No. No, he can't. Oh, and okay. the 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 path that they need to take in order to save the world requires that he be committed to her. Hmm. So he has to figure that out. Um, the only problem I really have with the story of Starless is that I feel like it would have been better if it had been at least a duology instead of a single novel. But it's mm-hmm. still pretty good as a single novel, even if I feel that certain bits of it were rushed. Who is texting me? Never mind. Nice notification sound for a text. (laughs) Not really. What did it say? Kamikaze. (laughs) Do you know what that means? (laughs) Yeah, no, but it it was a very kawaii voice. Yes, it is a very kawaii voice. Um, (laughs) But it's not really a good thing. So, right. um, Mm -hmm. She has published a couple of bits of nonfiction. Uh, one of which was a treatment of angels in legend and art, which I think is probably what led to the development of of Terdange as a story. Mm-hmm. There are very few authors whom I am willing to pay hardcover prices and spend the space in my library to have their books in hardcover. Hers are some of them. I I have acquired. Uh, all of the Terdange books except the newest one in hardcover. And they take up quite a bit of space on my bookshelves, which made it enormously entertaining when about a decade ago, my husband and one of my friends who knows Jacqueline Carey conspired to kidnap all my books and get them signed. Mm. That would have worked a lot better if it hadn't left a two foot wide hole on the bookshelf. Yeah. I did. There was no, I, they really thought they could get those out and back without me noticing, and that didn't work at all. What version did they give you? I don't remember what they told me. <laughs> uh, that was, <laughs> I think I remember essentially being told, they're fine, don't worry about it. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's <laughs> And good. since it was my husband and my friend, I was willing to accept their word, but I was very confused for about a month. Yeah, it's puzzling. You know, why is yeah. there why is there a hole in my in my bookshelf? Where where have my books gone? What is happening? How do you choose that you want to have physical copies according to how beautiful they are or how much you love the contents of them? Some of it is a question of what can I find. Um, 
many bookstores, especially like chain bookstores, they have limited space and they are much more likely to shelve something that is really well known or really popular at the time or new. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, you can get just about anything off of Amazon and that is where some of them came from. When it comes to hardcovers specifically, I want in hardcover books that I'm likely to literally read the covers off of in paperback. That I will read them so much the covers will be destroyed and the books Mm. won't hold together properly. And so I buy them in hardcover to help protect them from that. But that's pretty uncommon. Um, Occasionally I will acquire a book in hardcover because somebody gave it to me or because it is on sale. And I can't find it any other way. Um, Increasingly, it is books are not being published in what is referred to as mass market paperback, the smallest size paperback. And this Mm -hmm. has to do with what bookstores can do with them if they don't sell. A bookstore cannot actually return a mass market paperback to the book supplier for credit. Mm-hmm. And so publishers and book buyers are increasingly going towards what's referred to as trade paperback, which is frequently slightly taller, sometimes quite a bit taller, uh, because mm. those can be returned for credit. I like mass market paperbacks myself, although it's true that I do most of my reading these days digitally simply because I read so fast and on my e-reader I can put every book I own yeah you cannot pack books all the books you need in a in a bag correct whereas I have this little tablet that's um about five inches square Mm -hmm. and contains every single book I own uh And so when I get to the end of a book, if it's in a series, I can just go straight to the next book. Yes, this is occasionally a problem. Or (laughs) if I decide I don't want to be reading this after all, I can jump to a completely different book, whatever my mood is. As long as I have that book, I can jump to it immediately. Um, Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I still have and still frequently purchase lots of physical books. When my oldest sister friend was in town, we went out to the used bookstore and I bought about eight or nine books. (laughs) In many cases, the books that I buy physically at a used bookstore are books that it is difficult or impossible to find a digital copy of. Uh, Considerably older books books from the 80s and older that are not very popular are frequently very very difficult to find digital copies of and if you do find one they are probably a scan they're probably not actively published as an official digital version they are somebody took their beloved book and scanned in each page and corrected all of the scanning errors Mm mm-hmm And so you may be able to find it or you may not. Uh, Increasingly, publishers are going into their back catalogs and re-releasing those books digitally. And of course, anything that is very popular, such as Dune or Heinlein's books or older books than that, 
um, are published are, are released by the publisher in a digital format. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just realized that you probably don't listen to audiobooks because you, you, when you're reading, you can read much faster. That is true. I also typically don't listen to audiobooks because if I'm listening to audiobooks, I'm almost certainly doing something else at the same time. And mm-hmm. I have a tendency to get so focused on whatever else it is that I'm doing that I will stop processing what I'm hearing. Yeah. It's not that I stop hearing it. I just stop actually processing it. And then I go, wait a minute, what just happened? As my ears tune back into the thing. And so I have to rewind. Mm-hmm. And so not only is it a bit slower than just reading, but I also have to backtrack quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know a lot of people okay. really rely on audiobooks for travel and, and things, but for me, for the most part, when I'm traveling somewhere, I'm not the one driving. So mm. I do get a little car sick, but not much. So that was uh, Fedra's world was uh, sounded pretty fascinating to me. And, and you've recommended this to me before. Yeah, I will have to, I'll have to get to it. I do find these books to be really worth reading, not just because of the world space they're set in, which can really give you some space to think about the way that our modern world looks at things, but because it is a pretty interesting alternate history. And because for all that there are considerable erotic scenes and it's focused on love, it's not a romance novel. It's not erotica. That's not the thrust of the story. The thrust of the story is this political history. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way that she twines them together is really impressive. Yeah, Laura will have to read one of those at least. Yes, I think you will really enjoy them. Plus, okay. with the fact that you speak French, I think you may find some things in there that I didn't know to look for. Mm-hmm. The, the very decision of... Um... How you name your characters and how you name your places is mm-hmm. already interesting. And you can probably teach me how to pronounce some of those names, too. Mm-hmm. Terre d'Ange. I only know how to pronounce Phaedra and Jocelyn because when they go, when, when they're with the Scaldi, there's a, a more phonetic pronunciation in the text. Mm-hmm. But there are a number of other characters that I don't know if I'm pronouncing their names correctly or as the author intended. Or not. Not that it matters when you're reading to yourself, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you for sharing this. I will wish our listeners to go and discover some more Jean-Michel Jarre and some more early electronic music because it's real fun. And uh, remember to drink water and take your pills if you have pills to take. Right. Remember to grow your hair as long as you want. Listen to as much heavy metal as you can stand and practice good self-care, especially in these days where things can be very rough in an emotional sense if you're paying attention to the news. Remember Mm -hmm. to step away from those things and give yourself permission to not pay attention to that. Give yourself permission to still be happy even when the world is full of pain. Bye, guys. We love you. Bye.